The Jewish Views does Jewish Book Week. In this special podcast, we give you an insight into one of the biggest events in the Jewish calendar. We'll speak to the authors, the organizers, and the attendees to really give you a flavor if you were unable to attend. Welcome to this edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Kate Fulton. And I'm Diana Toman, and we're deviating a little from our usual Jewish views, and we're going to go into more detail about what happened at Jewish Book Week when Kate and I were there. I popped into the green room backstage and happened to catch Simon Lewis and Claire Hajaj having a chat. Simon is an author from Ireland and has written a book about Ireland's once thriving communities. And Claire Hajaj has written a book called Ishmael's Oranges about her community and her life in Lebanon. I started by asking Claire a little bit about her background. Although I'm, I'm British uh, by birth at the moment, I live in, in Beirut, Lebanon, which is a kind of a funny place to, to be Jewish. And Simon was saying that, well, it is a multicultural city, which, of course, it is very multicultural. Although in, in a place like in the Middle East, generally speaking, and I think this is sort of true maybe of both Jewish and Arab identity, that your identity is your passport into a place. So you don't walk in and you say, oh, well, I'm British because my passport says I'm British. That's not the, not the point. Your, your passport is your ethnic identity or your religious identity. So you're a Christian or you're a Sunni Muslim or you're a Shia Muslim. And so my passport there has until very recently, until the book came out, was Palestinian because that's my father and that's my name and that's my heritage. So I was Palestinian and accepted as a Palestinian and welcomed in as a Palestinian and taken to the camps and showered with gifts and our sister from London and all this stuff. And then, of course, when the book came out, they realized the other little secret, which is that my mother is Jewish, which is which is caused for them slightly an identity crisis because they're not quite sure how to... And is your book fiction? It's very much based on the story of my two families, but it is an imagined version of, of that. I just want to move for a second to Ireland. And Simon, you, you're Irish yourself. I am, yes. Yeah. So I was born, born in Dublin. Yeah, yeah. And what's your book? My book is called Jewtown, which it basically is an area in Cork City, the second city of Ireland, which was called Jewtown by local people when a group of immigrants moved from Lithuania in the Russian pogroms back in the 19th century and they all settled in the one area and basically became nicely known as Jewtown with no derogatory undertones at all. It is based on uh, census records from, from that time and I again just reimagined these people and how they might be feeling as new immigrants to a country that they didn't have the language, didn't have anything really except what they, what they ran fled with and ultimately trying to get a sense of identity in a new country. Identity is, is really an important point, isn't it? And it might relate very nicely to our next contributor, who yes. I seem to remember wasn't Jewish. Yes, Ruth Gilligan is actually also Irish, and she wrote this book, The Nine Folds That Make a Paper Swan. And I asked her what has sparked her interest in the Jews of Ireland. So I didn't really know anyone Jewish growing up at home, but then I came over to the UK for university. I went to Cambridge. A lot of my friends were Jewish, loads of them. And my, my, my best, best friend is Jewish. And 
we just kind of got talking about the Jews and the Irish and how there were certain similarities between the two communities. And it was just one day I said, I wonder, I wonder if you can be both. I wonder if, if there are Jews in Ireland. So I just Googled it. And lo and behold, this unbelievably fascinating history that I had never heard of was there to be found. And I just, something about it just clicked. And I just started getting a bit obsessed. And the next five years of my life suddenly became researching and writing this novel. And tell us a bit about this novel. It's fiction and fact? Yeah, so it is It is very much fiction. But, I, you know, I did do a lot of research, as I said, especially I probably did too much research, to be honest, just because I literally knew nothing going into it. So it's split over three timelines. It starts at the turn of the 20th century with a group of Jewish refugees who are fleeing for America but end up accidentally in Ireland instead. And then there's a storyline that takes place in 1958 in a mental institution just outside of Dublin and then there's a storyline that takes place in present day London and it's about an Irish girl who lives in London who falls in love with a Jewish boy and has to decide whether she's going to converse so that they can tie the knot. Wonderful and is that encouraged sort of people more interest in Jews in Ireland people to find out a bit more about Jewish heritage there? Yeah absolutely I mean it's been kind of astonishing one of the great things about having the book out there is the amount of people who you know similar to me are kind of say god I didn't even know was a Jewish community in Ireland and I didn't you know the community is really small now there's only about a thousand left but at its peak there were about five thousand but the stories and the way they're actually braided into the history of Ireland over the 20th century is amazing so that's been the most satisfying thing is people saying wow I didn't even know these people existed but now having read your book like I've learned so much I've gone away I've gone to the Jewish Museum in Dublin I've read some of the non-fiction books that are out there about the topic so that's been really really satisfying. Well, it was a pleasure chatting to Ruth, considering that she had such an interest in the Jewish community without participating and never having lived the life herself. Whereas, on the contrary, had a wonderful chat to Shulam Dean, who wrote a book, All Who Go Do Not Return, about his life in a very Hasidish community and how he was married at 18 and he struggled with his faith and he wanted to leave and how difficult it was for him to leave. I asked him whether in his book he'd actually painted a fair picture of the Haredi community. I certainly tried to paint a fair picture. It was important to me that the Haredi community not come across as vilified, but I also didn't want to romanticise them overly. At the same time, I had, to, I had to let the reader know what attracted me to that world initially because I was really immersed in that world. I was raised within it, but then as a teenager... I became even more fully immersed in it. I joined a group that was, in many ways, even more extreme than where I had grown up. I needed to give the reader a sense of why this was attractive, what was so captivating about it that that it pulled me in. But you paid a high price for leaving the children, the family. Do you ever think it would have been easy just to stay? It was the most difficult choice in my entire life. I never had to make a choice that was remotely of such weight. For the consequence, for what would happen with my children, but, but even for myself, is this a, do I, will I know how to do this? Will I know how to leave the only world that I know and become part of the greater world, which I know nothing about? I mean, all I knew about it was from watching movies and, and reading books. If I knew quite what the consequences would be, and those consequences would have been inevitable, then I would not have left. 
But I don't think the consequences were inevitable. I think I could have done things differently. But I am also glad that I didn't know then what I know now, because I this was the right thing for me to do. I wanted to do things in life. I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to, I wanted to live a different kind of life. I did not want to be married to the person I was married to, which was, you know, she was a wonderful human being in her own way, but uh, but it, this was not a good marriage. And I felt very resentful the entire time because it was an arranged marriage that I'd felt impelled to agree to, but I never really felt comfortable with it. And so it was the right thing for me to get out. I am doing now what I wanted to do. I write. I speak. I working on another book. I am in a relationship that is very fulfilling. I have a wonderful network of friends. There are challenges, obviously, but it is the world. Uh, it is the kind of life that I had hoped. Do you think you'll be able to get to see your kids at some point? Oh yeah, I'm sure there will. There will come a time when some of them, at least, will be interested in reaching out. I don't know when that will be. Oh, Kate, that was a really moving interview. I, I, I'm so sad for him. We know so little about the Haredi community. I do hope at some stage in the future he gets to see his children. Anyway, on a slightly lighter note, I had the chance to catch up with some people who are at Jewish Book Week and hear what they had to say about it. I liked it because there's a huge variety, a lot of very interesting stuff, um, some very good speakers came last year and enjoyed it a lot so I'm trying it again this year Who have you been listening to today? Today we heard Philippe Sands who's an international civil rights lawyer I've heard him speak before very impressed by the way he speaks and what he has to say and then later on this afternoon we're going to hear Robin Lustig talk about his career as a BBC reporter and that's interested me because his background looks fairly similar to the one from which I came. This is my first year at Jewish Book Week. However, I have been to hear Philip Sands speaking before, which was what motivated me to attend because I, I feel very inspired and very reassured by what he has to say. And I think he, he speaks very wisely and gives us perspective about what's happening now and reflecting on what happened in the past. There are so many fascinating People. My sister-in-law is at the moment in um, a talk about the Jews of Ireland and Dublin in particular and that's where her family came from so that is amazing. There are talks here that do have a Jewish focus but there are also some that are ready, anybody can really enjoy and yes I'm a habitué and I will be this week and I will be next year too. And we'll be hearing some other views about what people thought of Jewish Book Week a little bit later on. In the meantime, I had a chat with Rabbi Rafi Zaram because he's one of the moderators of the session with Marcus de Sotoy and Robert Winston. That was called What We Cannot Know is Marcus de Sotoy's new book, Exploring the, the Limits of Human Knowledge. Very complicated, it could have been, but I think he made a very good fist of making it accessible. And I started by asking Rafi how he brings together a session like this when you've got two great characters on stage in front of you. 
As I'm reading the book, I'm thinking about subjects that could be interesting for discussion and challenging issues and also what he's trying to achieve. So this book, for instance, is trying to move forward the debate between religion and science. It's not either or, it's a great partnership. It's how we can move things forward. So I wanted to ask Marcus, obviously, what's the book about? But then also have that conversation of why he wrote the book and what he's trying to achieve with that. Do you find sometimes it's quite hard to rein in a mass of ideas that are just coming flooding out? Well, I'm not afraid to interrupt. I think that the challenging issue of a, of a chair is not to get in the way, but also if it's going off, you know, keel to kind of bring it back and have that conversation. Do you find sometimes that you completely disagree with what's being said? Do you have to button it sometimes? Well, I always want to just take over and spend, I'm a rabbi, so I want to spend the whole time talking myself. But the aim is that they, you give them a voice to say things, so you prompt them to say certain things. So I, like, I knew Robert had this list of things that he didn't know and he wanted to say them, so I made sure he got to say that. So I try and make sure it all comes out eventually by the end. You did an excellent job because not only do you have to rein in the speakers, we're a Jewish audience, you have to rein in the, uh, the, those that want to ask a question or not ask a question. Yeah, well I think with science people are more, they don't seem to know themselves, they actually ask quite good questions here. One aim is just sell all the books. You know, people, if people read Marcus's book, they will you know, deepen their understanding of science and about the limits. And you'll see a, a scientist not afraid to say, I don't know. Not afraid to say, maybe there's God. As opposed to, I'm a scientist, I don't believe, or I'm a religious person, I have to believe. It's more complicated. And, and, and that, that nuance came out, which is wonderful. I think that shows great humility on the scientist's part. I really do. I think that was, an, and, and actually Ruffy's interviewing technique was perfect. Absolutely. And as a quantum physicist himself, he understands the, the, the maths and the science. But interestingly, he's actually a very religious man. Well, he would be if he was a rabbi, wouldn't he? I certainly hope so. I had a wonderful chat with an author called Haim Shapira, who's written a book, Gladiators, Pirates and Games of Trust. And he is a game theorist and mathematician. And he, he talks about the interplay between happiness and game theory. He also happens to be an incredible concert pianist. I hope we're going to hear some of his playing. Indeed we shall. And after that, I'm going to explore with him what game theory is, actually, to those who are new to it. I can pin down game theory to a shortest version. It is mathematical formalization of interactive decision making, but I can make even a shorter one of the shortest. Go for it. Yes, it will be interactive decision making or how people make decisions when you are not alone without other people involved. For example, negotiations, okay? You have to negotiate how it is art. To negotiate it is an art, not only negotiation, for example, auctions, okay? Courtship strategies. How can I date the most beautiful girl in the class? Or maybe it is better to compromise a bit, you know, since if you always will go for the most beautiful, who knows what will happen there. So whale restrictions, evolution of cooperation, almost anything. I Everything, therefore, theory, yes, you're going to yes. see it all through the game theory eyes. Yes, you're yes, saying yes, anything. Yes. And it is, quite inter- it is quite interesting to see it through the game theory eyes because you have important, I think, insights about many, many things, including courtship strategies. I will introduce you to my wife later. Pick a fact from your book for someone who wants to read it. What are you gonna, why should they read it? What's going to be exciting for them? I think that my book is about very serious topics, but it's very amusing. I don't believe that the serious is the opposite of funny. I wrote a, bu- a book which is very serious and really funny. I hope so, at least, you know. So people can learn a lot and not to be bored, you know. Since I'm dealing with 
penguins and women's and gladiators and pirates, you know, th- think it is uh, really funny, you know, to study game theory with gladiators and pirates, not, you know, player A, player B. It is really boring. I don't have player A, player B. I prefer gladiator. You don't have to be a mathematician. The whole idea of that book is that you just have to be curious, okay, the, to, to want to know things. No mathematics here at all. Goodness, what a... <laughs> What an incredible, multi-talented man. He even made it sound simple to an innumerate person like myself. Yes, well, I really enjoyed speaking to him. And I also enjoyed speaking to the people who had come along to Jewish Book Week and had a little chat with a few people in the hall. Well, I've been before, and what I really love is the stimulation of it, new ideas, exposure to new books, and also the opportunity to hear authors and the provocativeness of it I love and it's very it's very very lovely I've come to hear Shlimatin um, I'm interested in the whole topic and the way that it's become almost impossible for people to escape because they're given this education which escape from the Haredi community you mean yeah that's right on purpose they're given an education which limits their choices and for those people who do change who do decide, I mean lots of people want to stay but I'm interested in those people who want to leave and what they do I've come often before, but I was particularly interested in the Jews of Ireland um, discussion because my father's family came from Lithuania, lived in Ireland for 10 years before Ireland had its first anti-Semitic pogrom, and it's hardly been written about. I think I fully agree with that. I must say I found most of the people I spoke to myself were very enthusiastic. And the next person I spoke to was a fascinating Frenchman. He was the vice president of the Holocaust Museum in Paris, a Professor Bois. And the professor was there to support his wife, Ariane, who has just written a book, a novel, called Le Gardien de nos Frères, which is the story of two brave young heroes fighting to save Jewish children in the Paris of World War II. I started by asking the professor to tell us a little bit more about his wife's book. The French Jewish resistance and the rescue of the Jewish children during the war and after the war, because after the war, a lot of Jewish children were uh, hidden in the countryside, but nobody knew where. So Jewish resistance, Jewish scouts mostly, went into the countryside to recover these Jewish kids. Yes, that, that is, was very well illustrated by the story of Irene Nemirovsky and her children during the war who were also hidden on a farm, I gather, by Catholics. That's true, but in the case of Irene Nemirovsky, her child were big, so they knew they were Jewish. In the book of my wife, it's mostly the story of the young kids, the young kids below five years old. They were hidden by their parents, they were hidden by some Jewish associations, but they didn't remember their parents, they didn't know they were Jewish. So after the war, the Jewish community understand that were left in the countryside, in some convents, a lot of Jewish kids who didn't know they were Jewish. They rounded uh, some Jewish resistance, 20 of them, and they asked them to go in all the countryside of France to find Jewish kids. And they, went, they did that during three years between 1945 to 1948, 49 and they recovered 120 Jewish kids. That actually doesn't sound that many out of a population in France. 
No, because in fact, during the war, a lot of Jewish kids were hidden by the Jewish organization, like the Jewish Scouts or by the Lozé. Lozé was an organization to help children. But this organization knew where they were put the Jewish kids. So after the war, they went back and they recovered 10,000 Jewish kids. But here we are speaking about the Jewish kids that were hidden by the parents. And the parents were deported. And so nobody knew where they were. We are speaking about the kids when the parents were arrested. Sometimes the neighbor was taking the kid and keeping the kid. But nobody knew where there was the children. So they were a very specific case. And it was a program done by the Jewish Friends Association and the joint, the American joint, to discover these French kids. And after the war, a lot of these French kids went to orphanage and some of them went to Israel. And a lot of them are in Israel today. Is that so? A lot of them are in Israel today? Yeah. And some of them were on the Exodus boat. Which is itself an incredible story, how they made lives after they'd landed in Israel from Exodus. But moving back to London, to King's Place, there was so much to organise. It was quite interesting to see how the whole thing ran like clockwork. And I decided to go and have a chat with two of the organisers, Sarah Fairburn and Susanna Ockret. I started by asking Sarah how she thinks it's been going. Well, you know, every year it's a lot of hard work and it's a lot of fun as well. So it's been great this year. There's been a lot of uh, really great reactions from the audience, some wonderful speakers, and we're looking forward to even more of the same. But you see, I know Sarah's being very modest because I was down in the green room and I heard the green room person say that your spreadsheets were life-affirming. What do you say to that? Well, I think that if you're the one who doesn't have to make the spreadsheets, it's easy to have a very positive reaction to them. So So there's a lot of work that goes into it. I think you've organised it down to the last minute, haven't you? Well, you're very kind. I always say that running a festival is kind of like organising 100 weddings to take place within 10 days and so it feels a little bit like you're just trying to shove people together in a room and hope that everything goes okay until the end and no one runs away so we haven't had any runaways yet and that's great and what have you been up to i've been helping out sarah with those spreadsheets and making sure and trying to make sure that people are here on time know who they're talking to and what they're going to be talking about what would you say the biggest challenges have been in organizing gosh that's an excellent question I think just keeping on top of everything, but I think really those spreadsheets, just making sure everyone knows what to do, has been an enormous help. There's clearly been a lot of juggling around, and it's an excellent festival. It's terribly enjoyable, and the mixture, I think the variety has been really striking this year, that's been, you know, of an evening, lots of things that people want to go to at the same time. I love the way she describes it as all these weddings that she's had to put together. My goodness, <laughs> don't fancy that, but they did it so brilliantly. It's a good analogy. And that's all we have time for from this special edition of The Jewish Views. Thanks to all our guests, the team at Jewish Book Week, and, of course, to you at home for listening. And we mustn't forget the team, including our producer, Phil Dave. You can always listen to the most recent edition of The Jewish Views by visiting our website, jewishviews.co.uk, where you'll also find a link to listen again to all the previous episodes as well. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with the Jewish News and is part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. But from me, Kate Fulton and Diana Toman, do make sure you join us next time here on the Jewish Views. Goodbye. <laughs>